This is a Fubar Radio podcast. Go to fubarradio.com for more details. Screen Talk with Dan Clark on Fubar Radio. Hello, Screen Talkers. Uh, welcome to Screen Talk with me, Dan Clark, and of course with uh, um, I was going to say with me, James Gill. <laughs> I, th- what you don't know is that I've actually been playing the role of James Gill all these weeks. I'm doing an amazing job of doing two voices that can sometimes overlap. Of course, that's nonsense. Uh, with me is James Gill. We're gonna, I'm not going to do any intro. We're just going to jump straight in because we have got a bumper-filled show. So we're going to start with news, reviews, uh, titbits, tidbits. I don't know if you're a tit or a tid, but... Uh, Let's go tid. Okay, tidbits. James, how are you? Yeah, all good. How are you? Good, good, good. What have you got for us? Well, first of all, I apologise for dressing like it's Christmas Day. I've gone very festive. You have very gone very early. festive, but yeah. that's that's fine. I like that. I, I appreciate it. I regret it. I just wanted I, to get that out there. I like a deep red jumper. Thanks very much. Yeah. Hey, same <laughs> colour as your eyes. Uh, so, we were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, See, I, only I could have invented a character like James Gill. I told you I was doing it. Uh, go. So I thought we'd crack on straight out of the traps with Goliath. Mm-hmm. Now, something we talked about before is the 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 way that TV is evolving and how you can tell these stories. Um, you get stars of the silver screen plying their trade on TV, and this is happening with Netflix and Amazon Prime in particular. And Billy Bob Thornton in Goliath is absolutely joyous. So you've probably not seen it. You may not even heard of it. But you've got Billy Bob Thornton. William Hurt is also excellent. And it's a legal drama. And you tell me something that blew my mind. Because mm-hmm. we both love Billy Bob Thornton. I adore him. However, we also both love someone else. <laughs> <laughs> this is You're making it sound you like, know, a, like a mystery. mystery. <laughs> yeah, or, or a mistress, yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, well, you're talking, of course, about Kevin of Costner. Kevin Costner was in the running. Yeah. So, why, do we know why he didn't take the well, role? Well, I remember I read he had uh, he was going to do it. It was in all the all the trades, yes, as they say. Love it. Yeah, uh, Costner signed on to do David E. Kelly's new Amazon Prime show. The next day, Costner drops out of David E. Kelly's new show. I wonder that why. quickly to know, to know. And it made sense pairing up with William Hurt again. Yeah. Oh, that would have been great. But because they're rivals in the in the show. But that aside, Billy Bob Thornton. I mean, my absolutely adored him in Fargo. Bad Santa's one of my favourite comedies. I think he's just he's so a special good. talent. Yeah, he's so good. He's so charismatic. And I didn't know that about Costner. And while I was watching it with my wife, I actually said, apropos of nothing, there is no one other than Billy Bob Thornton yeah. who could play this. He does it so well because the first couple of episodes, it, it sort of plays out like, what if Bad Santa was a lawyer? Really? Yeah. Cause so he's, he's like he's boozed up. Yeah. He's got a short temper. He's lost his way. You root, but you're still rooting. That's what Billy Bob Thornton's got. You're always rooting always. for him. Yeah. Um, and then when he get, I'm not spoiling it because this is like you know episode two, episode three. As he starts to get his groove back, it's uh, it's a sight to behold. So I would strongly. Uh, and is it serialized? Is it like a story that's going across the series, or is it procedurals like different story each no, week? No, it's one story that goes across the series. Okay, cool. So strap in. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And it, does it feel like a sort of ed- like one of these more cable streaming shows? That's because um, you know David E. Kelly did uh, Ali McBeal, and was it Law and Order or? Pre McBeal, I think so, yes. Something like that. Yeah. So they were quite sort of networky, you know, good shows, but safe sort of. But does this feel a bit 
you know progressive is I, that well, a word I think I progressive can... is the correct word because that that is the norm these days isn't it yeah. telling one epic story across like eight to ten or even more episodes with really flawed characters and obviously swearing and nudity and stuff like that does that's it, does right it... good guys turn bad bad yeah. guys turn good <laughs> no it's, it's you know, proper three dimensional yeah. characters um, what I would say is that it's not reinventing the wheel okay, okay? so on paper He's a he's a lawyer who's a bit of a maverick and he's got a drink problem and an eye for the leaders. Yeah. Right. So never you, heard of that. So like so before. far, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I, I think because the writing's so good because it's David E. Kelly, because the acting is so good and it looks great as well, it still feels fresh and mm. exciting. I'm I'm excited about it. There's a few shows on Am- I think Amazon are slightly less better at announcing their shows than Netflix are. Because there's a few on there that well, I've I- just completely uh, you know passed me by i agree so halt and catch fire as we talked yeah. about last week it's got rave reviews and people talking but yet not not many people will no. know about these shows um and that's a lot of money to spend on a show to just sort of stick in the you know because these on, shows on the look shelf. great yeah you know the, the 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 cast the crew it's all there on the screen it's not like they're cutting corners mm. um so perhaps amazon needs to up their game on the, when it comes to marketing and publicity because netflix obviously hammer the the pr and the marketing yeah i think you know the because I've, I've often asked like how can they afford to spend you know it was in the news yesterday or the day before that the qu- the queen no the crown mm-hmm. is the most expensive tv show ever made now and they're, they're like they're saying numbers that are probably totally wrong like so 130 million for the whole series which what? that's the sort of money that you know even these tentpole movies some of them oh don't get oh my god but, uh, but you're like how do you how do you justify that sort of money and it's because they're not chasing viewing figures or advertising it's subscriptions yeah sure and that's a premium thing for people to spend their money on the money's already there everyone's paying every month in, and it's just about going look we've got this quality stuff here it's not, we're not trying to get this show to be the biggest watch show ever. We're just saying, subscribe to us. Don't let the us, speak for itself. Yeah, give us £10 a month, and we'll give you all these brilliant high-end shows. So I think it's less about, like, number crunching and sort of... Um, I think, anyway, I, I don't know. They're probably all running around Amazon <laughs> HQ going, Why isn't it rating better? <laughs> but that's the thing I get. So what else have... Uh, what, have what films have we got coming out? Well, so one that's just come out is Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. I think that's worth talking about because I would say, you know me, super positive. I am mm-hmm. Mr. Marvel. Although Mr. since Mr. you've been on this show, I have beat you down into you a have, bit more negativity. You have beaten it out of me. So I would say the first half of Doctor Strange, I mean, it's, it's like it's, got, it's unlocking the secrets of the cosmos. I sat there and I was thinking, that's it. I'm going to properly get into meditation. I'm going to change the world. Change comes from within, right? The first half yeah. is really exciting. Um, and some of the quotes really stay with you. It's quite mm. profound. And you think, well, this is going to build up to something special. And then the second half just doesn't quite deliver. I applaud them for doing something different. It changes the, the Marvel regular thing of a yeah. planet lands on a, a, a city lands on another city. But it just, it, I came away slightly underwhelmed. So I would recommend it. But it didn't knock my socks off. Is it like one of those, like, so uh, um, I was watching TV and there was a clip on, I think it might have been Graham Norton or something, and there was a clip from it where there's, like you say, this other dimension thing going yeah. on, and uh, my girlfriend went, that, that looks like uh, he's done DMT or something, you know. It's like, it's so <laughs> exactly. conceptual right. and psychological, yet how do you set up a movie to be that sort of big, but still please all the, you know, regular punters who aren't necessarily interested in that or have an ending, a third act that, 
you know that isn't about the good guy beating the bad guy and i mean it's it's almost like you're setting yourself up for a little bit of disappointment at the end in a way isn't it yeah i mean i applaud them it's very ambitious and if you're into meditation and yoga and self-help like i am mm. the first half you think well this is the film for me um everyone's really good in it you know come back oh by the way this is interesting as two comedians um the the screening i went to was a tough crowd <laughs> really? Cause, yeah because marvel do humor brilliantly and the the comedy writing is is glorious and there's some really funny lines in there and i was the only person in the cinema and i was like oh you were the only person in the cinema who was laughing oh, i was gonna say no wonder it's a tough <laughs> crowd <laughs> come on guys get behind me um so i was i was the only person laughing with people turning around to look so Beckenamodian people who visited yeah come on guys up your game yeah work with the film but there's some good zingers in there and i'd go ah and then i'd have that thing of people turning around as if to see what is wrong with so this so go guy. and see the film but just lower your expectations on the thir- last third is that what you that's, that's very very okay. fair um what about, i tell you what i saw um it was on channel four recently but it had a cinema release so it's a sort of combination of the two uh was michael moore in trump land yes which i was just mentioning to you before we went on air do we, is it on air before we went into the digital stream? <laughs> um, we, uh, I, I, I was really impressed with this. And the reason why is because the last couple of Michael Moore films I've watched, I've liked, you know, but it's clear it's just propaganda. It's his, sure. you know, I share very similar political opinion and uh, beliefs with him. But even I'm like, oh, it's a bit sort of propagandary. It's a bit like you're selecting and manipulating information just to push your sort of agenda pe- your agenda absolutely um and it becomes it feels like it's easy but this is it's a filmed one-man show in front of an audience in a what they call a trump state a state that is almost certainly going to vote for trump um trying to come i mean a lot of them are clearly democrats in the audience but still some trump supporters came, absolutely and he tries to in the first half anyway talk about why people would want to vote for trump like seeing it from their point of view and then like halfway through he, he talks as from the point of view of a trump supporter and then halfway through he just clearly just switches and then does a you know a huge push for hillary even though he says he's never been a big fan it's obvious you've got to pick her but i did think he did a really good job of you know, understanding why people want to vote for Trump to the point where apparently the Republicans have taken the first half Ooh, nice. before the change happens yeah, yeah. and been pushing it themselves, using it as their own <laughs> promotion because he's talking in the from the point of view of those people. So I've seen the opening and he does he does do a beautiful job. Yeah. He, he sort of like knocks the Democrats. He says, you know, we just can't make a decision. We don't yeah. about where we want to go out. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't mind. Where do you want to go? And that's lovely. And he goes, whereas a Republican would say, we're going here. This is where we're yeah. going. Get in the car. And that's that's a really nice bit. That's so all the Republicans are laughing hard and the Democrats are laughing yeah. at themselves. But I've not yet seen the old switcheroo. Well, the, there's a bit where he does a letter from the point of view of a working class person living in a really uh you know poor area in a somewhere like michigan or something where he's from um and you go see that he he knows he's watched what happened with uh the brexit thing and he's like you can't underestimate people that are pissed off that's right you just can't see whatever happens in this election and obviously with brexit regardless of which way you vote you've got to appreciate that there are a lot of unhappy people out there that's as political as this show's ever going to get isn't it and we are going to change that with this show this little show (laughs) um 
don't so Republicans, laugh don't if, laugh that no, hard. Come on, I feel like we're spreading a positive message here. So Republicans, if you're listening, just, yeah, you know, please don't vote Trump. Heal the world. Come on. Uh, so, um, oh, the accountant is the out accountant this week. From uh, from Trump to an accountant. That's a, there is there's a no link. There is. Go on. Uh, so, I, so not it's not been for everyone. So it's it's not scored brilliantly with critics, but it has scored well with audiences. So it's a it's a, a classic case of the critics going meh, but then the audience is going to see it and it, it actually doing okay. So Ben Affleck is really good. However, I suppose one person who we must flag up is J.K. Simmons because mm-hmm. even if you're not a movie fan, J.K. Simmons is a sort of guy where if you're watching a film at home on television, you go. Oh, hang on. What else has that guy been in? And so J.K. Simmons has sort of become, I think, like the, the 21st century Robert Duvall. He, do you know what I mean? He's just... <laughs> That's a really, really good uh, comparison. I like that Because if lot. you're not a film... Well done. Fan, thanks, mate. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it had to happen eventually. I hate it when people do that, but it doesn't feel real, like, right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, yeah, yeah a bit, it's I guess. But that is kind of, of spot point. on. So J.K. Simmons, if you're not a movie fan, you, you're going to like the guy. If you are a movie fan you're probably going to want to set up a new life with him because he's, he's just in everything he's in the guy is wonderful he's the kind of guy that even when he's in a bad movie because he's J.K. Simmons he's just so utterly watchable there's that Coen Brothers film that if it was a human being I would like to slap across the face because it's so pleased with itself burn after reading mm-hmm. but J.K. Simmons is so glorious in that film mm-hmm. by using the phrase Clusterfuck. I mean, that alone gives that movie an extra star. It's weird you mention Burn After Reading. That, that's come up a couple of times so over the week. So with itself, that film. And it really divides people. Oh. Even hard... Like, I, I love Coen Brothers films. <sighs> that one I have a bit of trouble That film with. is just... I mean, I'm getting angry. That film is just A-listers patting themselves on the back. Oh, what are we like? Not taking ourselves too seriously. Oh, Go fuck yourself. Wow. I really... Wow. Yeah, this I, is a I lot of anger, strongly James. dislike you, that movie. Are you okay? I... <laughs> you know what? I came here in such a good mood, and just the thought of Burn After Reading. Well, just think of all their other amazing films, of which there's about 20. I think I'm a bit of a... Uh, you don't, you're not big on the Coen brothers, I think I just think the Emperor might be missing a few clothes. I think you're wrong there. Okay. I, I think, think some of the films are, are good. Ooh. I, I don't. Is, we need to have a. We need the way to dedica- people talk about some of their movies, I'm like, yeah, it was, it was good. We need to dedicate a whole show to this because we can't just leave it at that. Because we do have to wind up now, and this this feels to me like we've started an <laughs> argument. You Adam, where are you on the Coen Brothers? <laughs> it, right, that's, it's one all. You can have the deciding penalty. I think this is unfair. Yes, oh, get in! Oh my god. <laughs> Okay. Thumbs down. I feel like I always liked you, Adam. I feel I, I knew I was surrounded by the wrong people. I knew it. This is ridiculous. How can you be film fans and not like the Coen Brothers? Mate, open your mind. That's what, what Doctor like? Strange would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on that slight bomb note. Um, well, okay. So, uh, any Coen Brothers fans out there, you know, tweet to me and tell me um, tell me how wrong James and Adam, my producer, are. Uh, because it, this is just absolutely dumbfounding me. I'm going to play a song now to cheer us all up. Uh, uh, this is a song that was used, not written or recorded for, but used in the film Little Miss Sunshine. It's by Sufjan Stevens. And I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what mood you're in, even if you, you're you on the ledge, you, you're about to jump, just play this song because it will change everything. It is the most joyous piece of music. I love it so much. This is Chicago by Sufjan Stevens. Fubar Radio presents Joey Page. Have you seen it on the tube, this advert? Million pound Jamie. Oh, what is that bollocks? 
that a job website, whoever it is, say that they spent a million pounds on helping you get a job. Well, they haven't spent a million quid on just you, have they? So it's lying already. It's lying already. And if they had, why don't you just give me a million pounds? No one have to go to work. Also, that bloke in that photo is not Jamie who is getting a job. He's some... Someone like you. Someone like me. Some poor actor who's uh, yeah, like, yeah, I'll do a photo shoot for a couple hundred quid and a rusty hand job. What? Every Wednesday. Joey Cage. From 1pm on FUBAR Radio. Screen Talk with Dan Clark on FUBAR Radio. Now, um, my next guest today, this is an unusual one, not just for this show, but generally, like, as a life experience, right? I just want to tell you a little bit about myself, right? I grew up in the 80s in the suburbs, uh, the borders of southeast London and Kent. Very boring, ordinary place, right? Beckenham, it's called. There's one cool claim uh, that Beckenham has, which is that David Bowie lived there for, you know, a few years. But apart from that, it's a very ordinary, emphasis on ordinary suburban area, right? To dream... Uh, to come from a family like I did my, my parents are very working class I'm not anymore, you know <laughs> But my family were We had no connections in film and TV If you were to dream to want to be in film and TV That was considered stupid Like It just doesn't happen to people like us Now I, I did eventually grow up and work in TV and, and film and, and I'm a performer, writer But it's all self-taught I never went to university or drama school And I'm proud of that I'm proud that I just went out there and did it But there were times when I would think to myself oh, Wouldn't it be great if I had like a, 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 an uncle or a cousin Or someone that worked in the business Who could give me advice or a job That would have been great you know. Um, but I, I never did you Because know, no one in our family came from that world at all I was like the first one to enter that world. I now have some younger relatives that are sort of a couple of musicians or whatever. But anyway, I that's what I thought. I'm 40 years old now. Uh, turns out I was wrong, right? So last week, I, I'm emailing with my mum, who's asking me about Christmas, the usual thing. When are we going to get together? When am I going to see you? And tr- You know, all that stuff. And then she just signs off the email. Oh, by the way, your dad's cousin Bill is the director of Starfish. And I'm like, what, what, what does that even mean? What do you mean? What starfish, you know? I, I thought she meant like a company. You know, he's the CEO, like the director of starfish. Because that's how unlikely it is that someone in my family or extended family is a director. So I googled it, and sure enough, there's a film out at the moment called Starfish, directed and written by a man called Bill Clark. And I was like, what? What is going on? And so I emailed my mum back and I said, so you're, you've never told me about this Bill person, never, never met him, and he's a director. I mean, you know, just to have chatted to him and, and sort of talked about, you know, the business would have been nice once, mum. Why have you just dropped it at the end as a, almost a PS when I'm 40? Anyway, I thought I cannot not get the guy on the show. So I'm going to meet him for the first time live on this show. I've never met him. We've had a couple of emails. We're going to talk about his film, which I saw and is great. But we're also just going to have a little chat and uh, God knows how this will go. It's going to be like Screen Talk meets Who Do You Think You Are? <laughs> um, so, uh, without further ado, welcome my guest, Mr. Bill Clark. Good day. Good day. You're not Australian, are you? No, no I'm not <laughs> sure what time it is. Uh, it is the, it is the daytime. Um, uh, so I guess the first question I need to ask you is, how exactly are we related? 
And I've been trying to work that out. We, yeah. we are definitely related. You're, yeah. You are my cousin's son, and um, that makes us... Is that second cousins? I believe it's second cousins. Okay, yeah, second cousins. And why did I not... <laughs> I mean, apparently we did meet... Uh, sat, you know, in sad uh, circumstances at my dad's funeral 20, almost 20 years ago, like 18, 19 years ago. But that was obviously not a time I really sort of remember the people you meet. This, no, there was a lot of people. But how come, did, did, have you met me before and I, when I was a kid and I don't remember? Or Yes, I did. Yeah. I, I, I did meet you when you were a kid. I mean, we, you know, for your listeners' edification, we come <laughs> from a very large family, a yeah. very large and extended family. So... Um, when I was growing up, uh, there were annual get-togethers where the six brothers or the five brothers that remained after the war mm-hmm. got together with their families and had outrageous parties <laughs> at your great-grandmother's house that lasted from Christmas Eve till New Year's Day. It was the first time I understood the seven-day leave at Christmas. Oh, wow. And that was where um, I learned many things uh, and, a, and a, more than a fair few from your father who was a little older than me and much wiser than me and he taught me many many bad things including <laughs> uh because we used to sleep in the attic at, mm-hmm. uh, at uh, our grandmother's house and the kids would all bunk up in the attic and there was a lot of them i can't remember how many there were but there was an awful lot of them and i had the misfortune to sleep under the tv aerial and your father barry my, my good friend barry convinced me that if i touched it i would die and i just lay awake for a week looking at this aerial, thinking, well, Barry would not tell me a story, so I'm not going to touch that thing. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing to do. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. Yeah, and it you was. know what? My, uh, my bro- one of my brothers, uh, they've definitely picked up that uh, quality from my dad, my brother Matthew. He, he liked doing that kind of thing to, uh, to his friends and to me. Telling I'll, us, I'll keep away from him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a bad sort. Um, but so, okay, so we're second cousins. and Because and, I do remember, actually, when I was younger, my sort of more immediate family and aunts and uncles, we used to have big Christmases. So it was obviously something that was um, kind of passed down the generations. But it just doesn't happen as much anymore. Like the really big 40 people getting together. I mean, I'm probably exaggerating. It was 20, but that's still a lot. Now it's all very sort of low-key and... I don't know, like, maybe it's just... It's, it, is un, it is unfortunate, but, I mean, you know, people move on. I, I moved away. I, I moved to America for a while and mm-hmm. then came back and then moved up north. And so I was, I kind of lost touch, except with some of the uncles, or one or two of the uncles, one in Brighton, one in East Anglia, and I stayed, stayed in touch with them. So, so yeah. in, in my uh, introduction, I talked about how I grew up in a you know, a place, an area, and within a family where getting into film and television and the the arts to an extent, but especially film and television, was like a pipe dream that there was no one in my family who really did that. There was no connection. And yet I find out that I've actually got a second cousin who does exactly that. So my question is, how and when did this happen? When did you get into directing? And we're going to talk about your film that is that is uh, um, in cinemas at, at the moment uh, after your first choice of song. But until then, what was the journey up until um, directing well, movies? I, ex- my experience was exactly the same. But fortunately, I hung out with a gang of people who thought definitely uh, differently and i was at the right place at the right time so what, I, uh, what where I, was this is, this was in um south london but over the the west side this was yule kingston around there Epsom, yeah. that way okay and a whole bunch of us that we wound up at college together started got into the music business and 
you know, I roaded for a bit and I hung out with a band down in Canterbury and I went to live with them. And my, my father was absolutely horrified. I mean, he, he you know, just... He was because just, he wanted you to have a, just an ordinary job or didn't, didn't like the people? turn into a long-haired degenerate, you know. And did you turn into a long-haired? <laughs> Good. Absolutely. Good for you. But he, well, no, I, I mean... <laughs> Dad and I reconciled when he realised that there was more than a few bob in it. <laughs> he's like, grow your hair longer. He said it's there never going to last. Money in then he realised it was going to last a very long time. Oh, so, that's good. So then I, you know, and I, st- I, I went to the London College of Printing and did a night course in photography and started taking pictures of bands and so. And I, did my, my dad did a very short-lived course in the same college or something? Yeah, he or? was at LCP as well. Yeah, and we, we worked together. Your dad and I worked together. He was working. He was a graphic artist for a while mm-hmm. and when, he was, when he was in his illustrating days. And, yeah. and I was taking pictures. I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. But so I, always, I, I always got the impression that, um, and I, think, I, I don't think this is me being particularly perceptive. I think it was obvious uh, that he wished he had followed his dream and with the art stuff. And, you know, and, and, and it's weird that we didn't have that sort of upbringing and all three of us me and my two brothers became they became artists i became a writer performer and you know and then there it is happening with you so did you when you were doing this was this in the 70s or yeah late yeah. 60s early 70s yeah. and then, what an and then in the, mostly in the 70s yeah um i when i left college and i i started just doing art directing and hanging out with bands and i went on road with quite a few bands taking yeah. you know working with them and then you know and that and one thing led to another and then somebody gave me a film camera and it was one of those how hard can it be moments you know? right that can't be that really difficult well it turns out it is quite difficult work. and also the back then it's not like you can just upload it to your computer and start editing no. like doing it how did you cut the things that you made back then I was very lucky I had um I'd bumped into a guy that I knew from when I was a kid and he was—he had a full-plate steam back, an old film editing machine, and he mm-hmm. was working for a big—I'm not going to get into names—but he was working for a big BBC producer who had an edit suite in his basement of his house in Notting Hill. And basically, this friend and I used to—you'd sneak—used to go in at about one o'clock in the morning oh, and work wow. through till four o'clock in the morning. And then when when the producer would get up about six o'clock in the morning, he'd find. The, his editor spark out on the sofa <laughs> and, and absolutely applauded him for working such long hours. Oh man, so that's we used amazing. to go in and cut all the stuff. And from from this guy, I learned how to edit on film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so brilliant because that really is like a test, just as much as the the craft itself is the effort and energy that you're willing to put into learning and doing stuff. I you know going i was going to say break into somewhere but he obviously had the keys and then you know work through the night and uh you know that's like people don't understand how difficult it was to to get that kind of knowledge and experience back then um so then at what point did you go from doing it as a hobby and that it was partly uh to do with the because it sounds like it was more artistic no no it was never it was never a hobby i was always paid for it was always paid for it yeah i just got you know and then I I kind of got interested in um, in uh, big show you know shows like product launches and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I started doing a lot of live events. I didn't like video. Mm-hmm. That was the trouble when we when when video started. I thought this this is a really ugly medium. And I was very happy working in film on film cameras, but video was not something that I wanted to work in at all. So I started doing live events and launching products. And I worked a lot for the cosmetics industry and okay. like, and doing those big shows. Yeah. But they were kind of pretty stressful and 
And that's like working in almost like in the advertising, right? Yeah. yeah so was, you're dealing with clients and things. It's not. It can be quite yeah, soul destroying, can't it? Well, it, what really hurt about all that after a while? I mean, it, it paid really well, and you know, you have a family like like you hmm. like Barry, like your your father. You know, we all had to make. We all have to make choices on earning a living and paying for the family and paying for the things that we want to do. And and the thing and the people that we that we our responsibilities that we take on and I think that's why Barry found another way when he moved out you know when he moved out to Beckenham when yeah. you know and and, and I, I was doing the same thing I was I would only you know I, I I was interested in pushing the envelope because that's where the money was yeah. so I'd do bigger and bigger shows mostly what broke my heart is you'd work on something for about eight months and it would end up in a skip I mm -hmm. hated that and you'd walk away and you'd think I've, I've got to get it into something that at least has some kind of life yeah and that's really what took me then into I mean eventually I kind of threw it all up and I got offered a TV commercial and I started making TV commercials okay and, and then so with the video um, age how do you feel about the digital age oh, I love it do I you? love it it's a totally yeah. different thing and it I mean, I worked for a long time to only work on 35 millimeter, mm -hmm. and that was, you know, my, that was where I, I just about achieved that. I did all my commercials on 35 mil. I did my first feature on 35 mil, mm -hmm. and then they invented DV, and I was like, oh no, what's yeah. happening? You know, and but I, now I think I think you have to view it. But it, totally it's getting good, way. though, isn't it? I mean, oh, it's it is. Really it's really. It, it's I, really I, I, I always think that Michael Mann, the director, must regret shooting on digitally so early in the process because some of his films look so dated now, and you can make them look so brilliant. Um, but also, the, 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 there's a lot of questions about like, is it uh, good? For, you know, it democratizes, um, you know, creativity. But is that good? There's always these different. Uh, points of view on it and the best thing i ever heard once was david lynch say it doesn't matter what the whether you you prefer digital or, or um film or whatever you know the most important thing is still always the story um he said people have had a pen and paper for hundreds of years it doesn't mean everyone writes stories you know you still need to have the ideas and the vision and stuff which uh which i thought was a really cool i mean it's true like Absolutely. Anyone could have written a script for hundreds of years. There was no. the implements, but you still got to have that drive. And well, look, we're going to talk about your film, which uh, I saw yesterday, uh, which is great, and I believe it's getting a wide. Because I was trying to find it this week uh, before we met. I believe it's going wider. The release on Friday is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, we'll talk about that, Starfish. Um, but first of all, we're going to play one of your two choices of songs. I asked you to pick two songs, and you actually picked two of my favourite pieces of music from films. This is the first one from The Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is a beautiful film, but the music, I mean, why did you pick this other than it's so beautiful? But I, I, I thought the film was stunning, and I, the, the music, I bought the music straight away. I mean, I love the evocation of the child's experience of, the, of uh, Katrina. Mm -hmm. And then I found out that, um, that the... The short film that they made before it, Glory at Sea, Obama picked up on the music, which is very similar, mm -hmm. and used it as his campaign theme. Oh, I wow. thought, you know, here is here are a couple of guys in uh, Louisiana um, who really, and the, the whole project was out of a, an actor's workshop out of New Orleans, and I just love the whole project. But I love the film. Yeah. I love the yeah, film. Yeah, it's a great film. I thought it was And fantastic. just, you know, the, the film, which is beautiful, written and directed by, do you say Ben? Is it yeah. Ben? Ben Z Zeitlin? 
He's also the bloody co-composer of all the music and plays instruments on it. I mean, jeez, how talented is this man? Um, Okay, well, this is The Bathtub from The Beast of the Southern Wild. What a beautiful piece of music. Amazing. Like, really sort of feel good as well. You know, the film's quite bittersweet in a way. Um, So Starfish is out. Why can you tell uh, the viewers, uh, viewers, listeners, um, kind of in a a one-liner what the film is about? It doesn't have to be one line. It's it's a true story about um, some people I knew who uh, he, he fell foul of. Uh, pneumococcal septicemia which is a blood disease now categorised under sepsis and in order to save his life he had to have his arms and legs and some of his face amputated and the film is really about the love story between him and his wife and how they worked so hard to hold their family together and raise a family and beat the emotional pressures and disasters that this uh, trauma brought into their Mm -hmm. world it's um, one of those films that you watch and you leave kind of... You can't help but just go, I am so lucky. <laughs> I am so lucky. Because what that man went through... One of my questions was going to be, did you know someone that suffered from this? So you actually knew Tom, the the guy that it was based he, on. He's in the film. He's yeah. the body double in the film. No, no, I, I knew his wife. We, She was a producer at a studio I worked out of. And um, I knew her casually you know we bump into each other in the corridors and and then i'd heard you know that she'd got married to this this guy this actor dynasty bloke who came up from london and then i heard this terrible thing had happened and and because it was a east midlands film community everybody got together to sort of do sponsor walks and discos to raise Mm -hmm. a bit of money and so that's how i got involved we you know i did um um through a friend we organized a golf night dinner and and she attended it and that scene's actually in the film. And she made this amazing speech mm-hmm. that just blew everybody away. And I, I thought, well, what a shame I didn't have a camera. I need to recreate that somehow. And that was the kind of the genesis of the whole project. So that was the moment you first thought about telling the story of this. Yeah. And um, I couldn't... I, just, I was watching it thinking, this must have been quite a difficult film to get off the ground. Because it's A, it's a small story and we're living in an age where... They don't really get told in the cinema as much, but also it's a it's such a um, un, unheard of dis- disease. I mean, is, do we call it a disease? A it's a condition. Condition, um, and like it seems to me that in the eighties, I remember when I was growing up, there were always there were films about like I remember Mask, the film Mask, and um, there was. Uh, Mel Gibson did one, The Man Without a Face. Uh, there was Born of the Fourth of July. There were these kind of rousing, triumph over adversity films that would win Oscars, but we don't really see them as much. So when you were pitching this film or writing it, how, did, how, how long did it take to get the money and to get the actors on board? Was, was that a tr- tricky process? Seven years. Yeah, it took seven years. Um, initially, when I started work on it, the industry was not keen to get on board. 
attitudes change. I mean, they just didn't want to do a story about a disabled person mm-hmm. at the level that I wanted to do it because I didn't want to do a kind of a Douglas Bader heroic story. You know, I wanted to really look under the hood and get to the emotional yeah. drama of what how small people who don't, you know, who can't react physically, can't express themselves through the Olympics. How do they do it? Yeah. But after 2012 and the London Paralympics, you know, attitudes started to change. And then we got help for heroes. And there were a few people like Matt Hampson, the rugby player. And people started, you know, I, I sensed that the people were reacting differently to the story. Okay. And then I, you know, I had, I had the good fortune to hook up with some very, very good um, people who came on board, Pippa Cross, Ros Hubbard, yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. And um, I noticed that uh, jo- Joanne Frogger. is she's one of, she's an exec producer as well. How did that come about? Ros sent her over her sent her agent the script, and she rang me up and said, "I really think this is an amazing story." Mm-hmm. And you know, we had lunch, and then she gave me she gave me a, she generously gave me a day to shoot a scene to see how we might shoot and how we might work together. And so we shot a test scene. We shot there's a very big scene at the end of the film with her, and we shot that as a test. And we got on really well. And she said, "Oh, I want to get money for you. I want you know, I want to make That's this happen." Amazing. And she stuck with it for nearly four years before we could actually close it out. Oh, brilliant. Uh, they're both fantastic in it, aren't they? They're just incredible. And and the little girl I thought was brilliant as well. Um, uh, it's when you're doing something like that that's you know like you say there's no you're not holding back it's uh you're not attaching a he was also a genius trumpeter or you know there's not that kind of classic hollywood thing there's a lot of emotion and darkness you know around in in a lot of the scenes how do you approach each day with that you know and and without everyone just like completely by the end of the I mean I suppose everyone you can't help but be exhausted but is there a different do you do you do something to keep uh, morale up or no no morale was really high on the on the, on the on the on the set it, it, it we had very talented people with not very much money mm-hmm. as all independent films kind of live with um, and Joe Froggett Tom Riley and I had worked through the script quite a lot so I was I had absolute faith in them, and we'd, we'd rehearsed it. Okay. I mean, we got good rehearsal time, so we which we'd, isn't always no, it's not always the possible, case. Yeah, but, you know, but we'd we'd worked through a lot of the issues, and we talked about it, and then they'd met the real people, and that was supposed to be an hour's meeting that went on all night, and then they all got drunk together and all <laughs> fell in love with each other, and so that was really great, and so that gave me the time to really concentrate on the little girl, so I was able to kind of okay. focus a bit more on her. Well, you did a brilliant job. Thing. Yeah, it's very cool. I know that that's it's, it can be a tricky one. Well, yeah. She was, you know, she was a real find, and so with a really good cast, and but there were such magical moments. I mean, there really were, and the and the the crew were incredible. Mm-hmm. And you know, considering that Tom Riley spent four hours in prosthetics for every morning, which were again was, like so so good. I couldn't. I was. I actually couldn't see that they were prosthetics. It was. No, it was it, they were the team we had on it were. Astonishing, and that was a, one of my really big worries because there was, you know, we we were worried that if we couldn't get that right, people would just laugh at it. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to make it too horrible. We didn't want to make it too not horrible. We didn't want 
I definitely felt like you were like this, you know, here, this is how it is. You're not, and knowing now that the, the Tom that the story is based on was the double in certain scenes. I mean, that bit where you have the close up of, you know, his arms and legs where they, where they've been cut off. I, I, I couldn't even recall a, a, a film or TV show where I've seen that, where you, you, you can actually see, you know the nerve endings and things and and i was like wow that's and knowing that it's in small india i was like that, surely that's not cgi that looks so real and 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 there's an emotional um uh, sense to the to the body when when you see it moving like that that you can tell isn't can't you and well, that was to, that was unscripted that moment and what happened with this the face was scripted the reveal of the face was scripted but we were doing it and i thought that you know, if we're doing a if we're doing a truth film about disability, we shouldn't be afraid of mm. of showing what it's really like. And I rang the real Tom, who was at work, and said, "Can you get down here now? I need you down here now, and I want to take all your clothes off and sit you on a stool and and just shoot it. But we're gonna, you know, we we'll shoot it in in kind of slight slow mo, and I want to try and make it a beautiful thing mm. rather than a, rather I than so, a repugnant yeah. thing. Oh, and I definitely didn't think think that. I, I was like, wow, this is. It just felt real really authentic and, and it made you think in a way that some I, I think sometimes you you don't get that um how is the real tom and he's, he's on fire is he's he? been on telly he's been every newspaper's picked it up tom and nick are going around and you know we absolutely lucked out i mean and it was everybody's saying it's the most amazing piece of timing actually we didn't know anything about it the sepsis trust were doing a, a whole thing this year on sepsis and the minister of health got involved and then you magazine ran a piece on Nicola on what it, how difficult it was to be a, a carer, you know, mm-hmm. in this situation, and then the whole world picked up on it. So, um, Tom Ray's employers, Lands End, the clothing company, have have paid for him to do motivational speaking and oh, doing his website. So, all Tom Ray, the real person, really wanted was to find a way to fit back into society, yeah. and so for him, this has been you know really good a really good process I yeah think, you know, what you say. excellent yeah, well for all of us really. yeah um well uh, good luck with it so it, it gets a wider release on friday up up and down the country yeah we're in yeah. well we've got um the bfi have have amazingly paid for um a special night um next wednesday which is i think in 80 cinemas up and down the country you, mm-hmm. can, you can see it on the website which is starfish.film and we, that's screening with some special behind-the-scenes footing and uh, footage and stuff like that. So, and then we, you know, we're we are all over the place until I think Christmas, really. So. Mm-hmm. Brilliant! Wow, that's amazing. Um, thank you so much for coming on and for for meeting me properly yeah, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> on the show. And I'll see you at uh, Christmas in twenty years, maybe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's no, not leave it so long. Um, uh, so thank you very much uh, this is your second selection we actually dedicated a whole show to this soundtrack uh, a few months ago but we didn't play this song I don't think um, this is Hard Sun by Eddie Vedder which was written for the film um, Into the Wild, Into the Wild by uh, Sean Penn is that a particular favourite film of yours or do you just I think it should be compulsory viewing yeah it's beautiful kid. isn't it it's every so good kid, I just somehow kind of went a bit under the radar I think but amazing film. yeah beautiful film Hard Sun by Eddie Vedder thanks so much Bill
If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes.